I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Ben Weingarten. And I'm Rachel Bovard. And this is NatCon Squad, where common sense and common good meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So welcome back, everyone. We're going to dive right in. We've got a characteristically diverse array of topics for you today. So we're going to start with Rachel, who's going to talk about the deep state, predictably, uh, you might say, being against busting up big tech. We're going to transition to Ben, who's going to give us an update on President Biden's equity affirmative action plan. I'm going to give a segment against a, a conservatism of quote unquote principled loserdom. And then we're going to go to Emily, who's going to tell us about the doxing horrors with The Washington Post and the libs of TikTok. But let's start with you, Rachel. Tell us about the deep state and big tech. So as the tech lash, I guess, for lack of a better term, actually takes shape on Capitol Hill, you're seeing big tech flail. Like they never thought it was going to get to this point right? where actual legislation would be passing with bipartisan support, which is what we're seeing in both the House and the Senate. So predictably, they've turned to uh, the, the boogeyman that always arises, if you ever notice, when anyone actually tries to do something meaningful, which is this vague, the vague specter of a national security threat. And we're seeing this with regard to how the big tech debate is now being handled. Suddenly, suddenly, any action toward big tech, if it's a policy change, if it's antitrust enforcement, no matter what, is going to pose a grave national security threat. It is going to let China win, people. If we do anything <laughs> to curtail or constrain Google or Facebook, China wins. And uh, the latest iteration of this is a, a handful of uh, former national security officials coming out and saying this, like, you know, a lot of very important throat clearing about, you know, how we know this will happen without, you know, any real evidence of, you know, being able to prove it. They're supposed to just use their national security credentials to make you believe it. But I think, you know, on the whole, the American public is not predisposed to believe it from these people anymore, in particular because people on this list also said Hunter Biden's laptop was Russian disinformation. You know, they've also, people on this list, uh, when the Senate was investigating uh, the CIA's torture uh, report, they hacked Senate computers to try and figure out what the Senate had. Like these are not trustworthy people. And then in addition to that, a handful of people on that list are also literally being paid by Google. So it's it's how they expect us to take this seriously at this point, I don't know, but it's not just this letter. You're starting to see uh, Google funded proxies, the nonprofit proxies here in DC uh, set up, you know, cybersecurity task forces to tell you about all the horrors uh, that will be unleashed if you are forced on your Apple iPhone to, to sideload apps. If you're allowed to purchase, if you are allowed to decide where to purchase your apps, China wins. I don't know if you were all aware of this, but it's really bad, <laughs> apparently. Anyway, all of this to say, not only are the messengers absurd here, but the argument is absurd because these companies, and, and this, I just feel like I'm repeating things everyone should already know because we've talked about them ad nauseum. These companies want nothing more than to access the Chinese market. They want to be in bed with China so badly that they are willing to, in the case of Apple, assist the Chinese government in, in you know, developing technology to outpace the United States. Um, there was a 
You know, Google, for instance, as we all know, famously refuses to work with the Department of Defense on artificial intelligence projects. But Google has no problem opening an AI office in Beijing because that's really where they want to be. Um, there was a quote from General Dunford way back in 2019 when he was testifying uh, before the Senate Armed Services Committee, then at the time as the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, when he said, quote, the work Google is doing in China is indirectly benefiting the Chinese military. He goes on, frankly, indirect may not be a full characterization of the way it really is. It is more of a direct benefit to the Chinese military. So to call these our national champions, to say, oh, these are the people that are going to protect us from China is such an incoherent argument just on its face. And I think it's actually insulting to the members of Congress because the evidence is in such a clear direction that is it is just not true at all. It's insulting that we should be led to believe it. Um, but I kind of throw this open to, to the group. I think there's a couple threads to pull on this, not just the argument itself, but the fact that how, how are we, do we even take these people seriously, these intelligence officials seriously anymore? Yeah. I mean, like, what do they think about TikTok? I'd love to know, <laughs> uh, like an actual Chinese uh, spy software and uh, information warfare software, basically. Um, but this is, I guess, pretty stunning abuse of their credentials and their power. And in, in a way that, I, I mean, I actually still think that it's stunning. I don't want to take for granted that it's obvious, you know, after they put their credibility on the line with Hunter Biden, knowing full, full well that they were covering um, for a partisan purpose and not for the truth. Um, these are people who, this is like Washington values, right? Like remember when Ted Cruz decried New York values um, <laughs> on a debate stage? This is Washington values in a nutshell. And it is, it is really sickening that this is the state of our uh, sort of elite in our leadership. Um, they're abusing their credentials for profit um, and at the loss, uh, at, a, at a deep loss to the American public, to American children. It is a farce, it is a lie. Some of them have been convinced to believe it um, because you know when you're blinded by sort of money and, and prestige and profit, you're easily persuaded by some of these arguments. Um, and, and some of them don't believe it at all. They just uh, you know hate the icky people that are, are trying to um, go after the companies that they like and that they work for. Um, the fact that they're in they're on the payroll of these companies is is glaringly obvious. Um, Glenn Greenwald, it probably took him like an hour to run this down um, on his Substack. So it, it is truly, truly a sorry, sad state of affairs that our elites can abuse their credibility so blatantly, um, so dishonestly, and uh, they have no fear of retrib retribution because they're all on the same page. That's how disgusting this is. In a normal, healthy country, you would, you would never put your name on something like this that is so obviously a lie, um, but they have no fear of doing it because uh, we don't have a culture that holds them accountable. Well, let me start with a positive of this, which is that I think this letter is an inadvertent admission of the fact that our ruling class has lost the argument on China. They know that everyone knows that China is the greatest adversary that we face, you know, regardless of the hand wringing over Russia. And then, of course, uh, the threat of white supremacy, as we'll get to in the in the next segment. Uh, so to that end, I guess it's a good thing that they're saying, well, we, we need to be competing with China because that means they lost the argument about integration and engagement, even though they'll continue to pursue it, of course. And these tech companies, of course, will continue to pursue it. Um, but that said, China wins if we emulate China. And our national security state 
is in league with the very big tech companies, of course, that they are championing here and protecting. Essentially, they ought to be thought of as adjuncts of a ruling class. They are the corporate communications platforms of the state. They are essential to the state being able to propagate its favored narratives and suppress those that the regime does not like. So consequently, of course, the national security and intelligence apparatus are going to be the ones defending big tech. They're all in league. They all work together. And the Hunter Biden example, of course, perfectly illustrates this sort of seamless relationship between intelligence officials, corporate media, and of course, the big tech communications platforms where the corporate media's, again, favored narratives and by extension, the state's favored narratives are propagated and disseminated and those that they don't like are suppressed. So I think it's perfectly in keeping with the idea that the big tech world, particularly these companies are adjuncts of the administrative state. And so of course they're gonna defend it. And the last thing I'd say is of course, it's just hilarious that Jim Clapper is the first signatory on it, someone who's perjured himself at least once or twice. Um, It it really is, it's just a victory all around uh, for a ruling class that continues to beclown itself and destroy its own institutions with its behavior. So, look, I mean, I, I think it's to build off what Ben was saying there, I, I think it's not a coincidence that the man who kind of got the phraseology, this term ruling class, who kind of injected it into the veins of the conservative ecosystem, the late Angela Cotavilla, obviously spent large swaths of his career working in the intelligence community. I mean, he knew exactly what he was talking about. I mean, he was he definitely had the intelligence community, the CIA, the NSA, the entire kind of alphabet soup, all the agencies in mind when he kind of wrote that, you know, that very prescient essay way back in 2010, if I have the year correctly. And, you know, I I guess one thing that comes to mind here, I'm happy that Emily brought up, obviously, the Hunter Biden fiasco, which I think was yet another data point of kind of of the intelligence community kind of just, you know, jumping the shark, kind of like an eyes wide open moment, I think, for a lot of Americans, a lot of kind of right of center Americans who kind of in an earlier generation were kind of told that, you know, to be patriotic, you have to kind of support the CIA the same way that you support the military, things like that. But the the point here is that just like woke capital, a lot of these corporations like here in Florida, where I live, obviously Disney being kind of a a very much in the news kind of example, the same way that a lot of these corporations are totally kind of exceeding the bounds of what they should be doing as far as kind of looking after the value of their shareholders and the interests of their their corporate entity. So is the intelligence community and, and, you know, veterans and current people alike are doing way more than they should be doing as pertains to kind of the narrow confines of their actual jobs. So I of draw a direct parallel. Um, you know, if we, if, if we can coin a term here, I mean, it's, it's not that it's woke capital, it's like woke intelligence, right? I mean, it's kind of the same kind of concept. Um, you know, the technical kind of Latinate legal term for this is ultra virus. Uh, in corporate law, ultra virus is when it is, is when it kind of in, in corporate law, when the corporation is acting well outside of its corporate jurisdictional area. So the intelligence community here is acting kind of ultra virus fashion um, is what I would be saying, but it is very much kind of an eyes wide open to sobering moment. Um, so to the extent that it kind of clarifies and hardens the battle lines, I think that's a silver lining at least. But uh, I, Rachel, any uh, final thoughts from you before we transition here? No, I think we've covered it. So okay. thanks everyone. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. So um, uh, Ben, let's go over to you. Tell us about uh, what's going on with President Biden's equity affirmative action. Yeah, and I think the last segment really actually transitions pretty nicely into this. Um, you know, we have sort of a parallel going on between corporate America, which of course in and of itself is becoming something of an adjunct of the state in many ways. 
and what's happening in our federal government. And I think I've referenced in the past this first day Biden administration executive order on affirmatively advancing equity. And now about over a year on from the issuance of that order, it has borne its poisonous fruit. And so the Biden administration recent, recently announced that all of these agencies subjected to that executive order would be releasing their equity action plans. And it notes that more than 90 such federal agencies, including all cabinet level ones, are releasing their first equity action plans, laying out more than 300 concrete strategies and commitments to address the systemic barriers in our nation's policies and programs. So this is, I would call this the remaking of the federal bureaucracy in Ibram X. Kendi's image, period, full stop. It goes on to say, advancing equity is not a one-year project. It's a generational commitment that will require sustained leadership and partnership with all communities. And these are these equity action plans are part of a broader agenda, which also includes implementing the first ever national strategy on gender equity and equality, working to ensure the Fed, federal government is a model for diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility in the workforce, and on and on. And so I started to review some of these equity action plans from these individual agencies and what we find here is incredibly striking. So let's start with the Department of Homeland Security, for example. Under its equity action plan, it grants, it, it basically doles out funds to help, quote unquote, counter domestic violent extremism to better address the terrorism related threat to our country, posed, of course, by white supremacists and other domestic terrorists. The State Department. The State Department's plan calls for improving demographic data collection and analysis to better embed equity and gender equality into U.S. foreign policies. Okay, so we're going to be exporting wokeism now via the State Department. And going back to that DHS action plan, and this dovetails with something I've been arguing here for a long time, their plan notes that the findings combined with strategic guidance, guidance set forth in the National Strategy for Countering Domestic Terrorism are being used to prioritize, update, and modify existing goals, objectives, roles, responsibilities, and timelines for all actions across DHS, including those that advance equity. So as I wrote in Newsweek last June, our counterterrorism policy is anti-racism. It is, in effect, applied critical race theory that is our new national security strategy domestically. Going back to the State Department now, worth noting, the State Department touts as a, an achievement in connection with its equity action plan, increasing intersectionality and equity in foreign affairs through special envoys, encouraging intersectionality across global work streams by engaging in lines of effort to promote racial equity, accessibility, value, and inclusion of individuals from underserved communities. And it talks about engaging with uh, foreign partners on this basis. It also says, the State Department notes, that the analytical framework that I mentioned, this data collection they're going to be engaged in under the guise of equity, will underscore embedding equity into the State Department's foreign affairs work as a strategic national security imperative. So just like on the domestic level, on the foreign level as well, wokeism is our foreign policy. So I can stop right there. We could spend all day going through the various agencies and how this is being applied. Of course, there's a sort of vote buying aspect of this in terms of grant doling out grants on the basis of equity and, con and federal contracts as well. But I think what's remarkable is, first of all, that I have not heard really anyone in the major media talk about this at all. I have not heard Republican members of Congress and certainly not Democrats talk about this at all. And so, and maybe this will kind of dovetail with what Josh is going to talk about. 
One question would be, what would be the Ron DeSantis approach when presented with a whole of government woke takeover, which we're being presented with here? Why are Republicans silent on this? What should a Republican next Republican Congress potentially do in the face of this plan? And then what will the next president do? maybe in 2024, a Republican, knowing that the whole bureaucracy, which of course will try to do everything it can to destroy whoever that Republican would be in the first place. But what will we do when equity has been embedded in every layer of the federal bureaucracy? Those aren't rhetorical questions. I'm curious to hear your all thoughts. Well, you know, I think we've talked about th this theme before, but it, this just strikes me as as such a, it's, it's symptom of, of the decadent culture in which we live. The fact that we have the luxury of focusing on things like, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion in our national security, like should tell you so much about kind of where we are as a country. But I think it's interesting because, you know, flipping from my segment where we're like, these national security officials are just making a farcical argument to actual national security concerns. These are having serious effects. I mean, you saw the DOJ cancel, uh, you know, their espionage project around Chinese, uh, you know, academic, the infiltr infiltr Chinese infiltration of our academic institutions because they thought it might be racist, right? You have uh, now Congress trying to pass this bill purported to compete with China, and yet all of the research funding is going through the National Science Foundation, making it subject to a host of sort of you know academic victimology metrics, not actually you know what's going to actually take on China. So it's we are intentionally hamstringing our, hamstringing ourselves and wrapping ourselves around this axle uh, of you know wokeness in the face of countries that are just not right that are, are laughing their butts off at us because you know we are just focused on completely the wrong thing. So the, this is an actual, this needs to be a priority agenda for Republicans when they take over to sort of rip this out root and branch from the policymaking apparatus, but also, you know, kind of within the bureaucracy, uh, this has to be dealt with in a really strong fashion. I don't know how you do it. If you do it through really strong political appointments, you actually pass statutes or you do whatever the Curtis Yarvin uh, acronym for this uh, rage, retire all government employees. I don't know how you do it, but this has to be an area of focus. Let me just interject briefly and note that Glenn Greenwald, for example, has said that has argued essentially that the CIA will act like it's promoting wokeism because that serves as a cover for all of the really brutal and nasty things it does around the world. But in this case, I really think to your point, we see that there are myriad threats that we're facing and clearly all of these resources are being diverted towards wokeism and the threats are imperiling us. So I don't actually think that they're engaging in, I'm sure, of course, government does horrible things around the world as every government does and good things too. But in this case, I don't think this is a cover. I don't think this is a facade. I think this is really the agenda. I did a, um, a radar on rising once uh, with the headline, uh, is cancel culture literally killing us? And the uh, the online left was, they had a field day with it um, and really enjoyed uh, you know, mocking the headline, but it, it actually was really serious because it was citing reporting from Katie Herzog, um, who was showing that in the medical community, um, there were serious consequences. I mean, people not getting treatment 
uh, police being uh, taken out of emergency rooms where they have high incident uh, situations um, because of these ideas. And so Rachel's point about decadence, I think, is an extremely important one here. I, I really, really think that this is a, is a consequence of our decadence that our elites sort of use these buzzwords and these debates as their intellectual playthings, um, while the rest of the country suffers. So it's it's all superficial and not substantive. And I think you can transfer that right onto just about any institution, whether it's the medical community or the military. Um, and it, it's the same story, whatever institution we're talking about, it's the same story or the, the sort of baseline of what a government is supposed to be doing for the public, where your tax dollars are going, paying taxes the other day was like as depressing as it ever has been, just looking around the state of the city that I live in, Washington, D.C., these public services, they can't perform basic functions as a government. Um, and yet we have, you know, a trans-policing agency. So uh, anyway, all that's to say, I think is the decadence point is a good one. And I do think we are literally suffering. And I do think some of this is, is literally killing us um, in certain situations, um, specific situations to be sure. But uh, the consequences are dire. Yeah. So look, I mean, I, I, I agree with everything that's been said. I'll kind of make like a somewhat narrow and, and, and more legal point, which was, I, you know, I was watching, um, I think I was watching a Trump rally, if not recall, like a few months back or something like that. And he had some line that was, you know, very predictably all the usual talking heads on Twitter and, and, and cable news were basically like, oh, he's a fascist. He's a tyrant, a dictator. But he basically said that he, that the imperative is when the next Republican president comes in, that the next Republican president has to have the authority and the ability to quickly and efficiently fire whoever the hell he damn wants to immediately. The problem, obviously, is that there's flawed Supreme Court precedent that currently precludes that. Um, there's some cases going back to the 1930s. There's a case called Humphrey's Executor. There's actually there's actually some litigation right now, actually, out of Texas that I'm kind of keeping a rough eye on that could potentially get up to the Supreme Court and challenge on that precedent. When conservatives, you know, you know when like FedSoc lawyer types talk about unitary executive theory, this is what they're talking about, is the idea that the executive power that Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution speaks, the executive power is vested in a president of the United States. It is not vested in a president of the United States and his cabinet, his you know, political appointees, whatever. The executive power, which literally entails nothing if not hiring and firing and personnel decisions, is in the president. Um, so whoever the next Republican president is, whether it's um, Trump, whether it's DeSantis, whether it's someone else, we have to recover that ability to actually make quick and efficient personnel decisions. Because if there's one lesson to take away, I think, from the Trump presidency, and Rachel has written a lot about this, is that his agenda was undermined from within by obstinate personnel decisions, bad, a lot of bad hiring decisions, too, to be sure, but a lot of kind of, you know, uh, underhanded deception from within. And then, of course, you know, once you're once they're there, you have a difficulty firing them. So we've got to fix that, whether it's from the Supreme Court, whether it's unilateral action, we have to be able to rectify the executive's ability to make firing decisions that redound to his or her agenda. Um, but let's transition. Um, so I, I want to talk about here, this is kind of a slightly more abstract, theoretical, less kind of policy news cycle driven segment. I, I want to talk about uh, a conservatism of, uh, to borrow a phrase from our friend Matthew Peterson of the Claremont Institute and New Founding, uh, a conservatism that opposes, quote unquote, principled loserdom. So what kind of got me thinking about this this week? So uh, earlier this past week, I was up in New Haven. I, I had two debates at Yale, one for the college kids, one for the law school kids. Um, I, I did a debate uh, for the college kids through their William F. Buckley program on so-called common good conservatism, which obviously is kind of a vaguely defined term. 
to me, it's basically synonymous with national conservatism. It's basically getting at the same concept. Um, so I was debating um, Dan McLaughlin from from National Review, who's you know a very perfectly nice guy, and I don't want to spend too much time picking on Dan individually. We had a perfectly kind of amicable and enjoyable time. But the point here is that what I heard from Dan, and what I, I think we hear from a lot of kind of you know conservatism Inc. types, if you will, more broadly is you hear this refrain over and over again, is that we can't get our hands dirty, we can't get in there, we can't fight. Um, you know, the line that I heard in my debate early this week was we have to be the adults in the room. You know, it is incumbent upon conservatives to kind of take the moral high ground to be the adults in the room, um, things of that nature, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, look, here is my basic response to that. And I'm writing my column on this right now. My basic response to that is, there was a famous Supreme Court decision. I think it was Justice Jackson, if I'm not mistaken. I have to go back and double chat that. But there's a famous Supreme Court decision that says that the Constitution is not a suicide pact. Now, if we take that seriously, then the public square, the town square, the marketplace of ideas, kind of insert your kind of you know liberal kind of uh, metaphor du jour, that cannot be a suicide pact either. Okay, I think for 60, 70 years now, really, kind of like the post kind of post-World War II kind of Cold War era kind of fusionist consensus, I think conservatives really have tried to kind of take a, a stance of kind of principled neutrality of, kind of, of trying to say like, you know, like, let's not get our hands dirty in the public sphere because privately speaking, as long as we kind of privately inculcate our virtues, you know, we're going to win out time over time over time. And it's kind of this Whig theory of history kind of hubris, right? This, this idea that kind of the moral arc of the universe will necessarily kind of bend towards our ideas. The problem, obviously, is that when you, you don't laterally abandon the public square, when you don't inject your values, when you don't actually try to do something publicly, similar, I think, to what Governor DeSantis is trying to do down here with respect to Disney and things of that nature, then the left is just going to come in. And, and we've seen the results of that. We, the results have been this Gramscian march to the institutions, the likes, of which, the likes of which we talk about on this podcast basically every week, whether it's big tech, Hollywood, Silicon Valley, the media, the, the Fortune 500, the, the K through 12 public education bureaucracy, you name it. So I guess I just fail to see what the alternative is. I mean, I fail to fundamentally see the virtue in a conservatism of principled loserdom that is okay with effectively being controlled opposition, that is okay with nominally fighting its fight, but then just kind of going home at the end of, at the end of the day and saying, you know, turning over to your wife or husband in bed and, and saying, you know what? I fought a good fight today, honey, but you know, we lost again. It's okay. I mean, this is what Michael Anton was referring to, obviously, as the Washington generals, right? And kind of his famous analogy in the flight 93 election. He was famously saying that Republicans are the Washington generals who are content to just lose. And I think what we're trying to do on this podcast is suggest an alternative path forward for a conservatism that is not unprincipled, that is maybe just a reshuffling of our priorities, something that Rachel has talked about, but is actually capable of meeting the magnitude of the moment and can actually win. But the point here, and I'll kind of end this rant and just throw it open because this is kind of a topic we can talk about for hours and hours, is that there is nothing dignified or virtuous about controlled opposition, principled loserdom with being content to just lose. Um, but I'll kind of just get off my soapbox on that and curious for everyone's thoughts. I'll just quickly jump in um, because Ben and Rachel have a lot of thoughts on this and, and more policy knowledge, but like I, I have never seen these things as uh, sort of being mutually exclusive or incompatible. Um, and that's what's sort of frustrating, right? Because to 
to Josh's point, um, I remember asking Marsha Blackburn before the Katanji Jackson confirmation hearing, you know, if if the Kavanaugh hearing really changed the way they were going to approach this. And she was saying Republicans kind of like the adult in the room argument. You know, it's incumbent on them to be civil, to be examples, blah, blah, blah. And then she went on to be civil and to be an example, but to also sort of hold a post Kavanaugh hearing for Katanji Jackson. Um, and that's different, uh, of course, than like the criticisms of DeSantis in Florida. But are, are we talking about Disney's cronyism and this like public private partnership that has been uh, based on cronyism and huge amounts of lobbying? And like, are, is that what we're talking about protecting? Um, you know, so again, I think a reshuffling of priorities is one way to say this, but also just sort of rethinking uh, the the uh, limits of where you want to take this sort of free marketeerism, right? Like, it, it, is it in the, even going back as Rachel often does to Bork or to Friedman um, in the way they in, have always talked about markets and government and freedom, um, we've just gone far afield of that because, you know, the, the, there was a time when booming markets and freedom and everything was, uh, you know, we, we didn't lose our ability to share consensus on basic facts about life. Um, that's gone now. Uh, and, and so I, I don't think it requires, you know, throwing conservatism out the window um, to, to get it back. I, I actually don't think these things are mutually exclusive. And um, I think, you know, the sort of hardline libertarians who do are wrong. I think Emily's point about, like, thinking that we are in a consensus situation is, is, is important because a lot of these debates are arising because there are people on the right that still think we're in a country with a shared consensus. We are in a country right now that cannot even agree on biology. We are in a country where people, some people literally think babies are born and doctors make a guess about their gender. Like that, that is something that people believe. And like, so the things that formed the basis of the post-Cold War consensus are no longer valid. And so the right has to, as a means of survival, change its approach. And we are living right now, I think, in that sort of very dynamic and tech, you know, tectonic plate shifting environment. Now, I don't think, as Emily pointed out, you have to upend, you know, the whole of conservative thought and conservative tradition. But what you do have to do is A, recognize this and B, recognize the essence of, of, of what a lot, you know, what we are trying to defend in many cases. Emily brought up the point of Disney. You know, you're, you're seeing people on the right saying, well, we don't want to be the bully. Uh, yes, let's, let's, let's defend Disney's cronyism as somehow protect, you know, the, you know, the going after them would be regulatory. No, no. In, when in fact, as I've argued many times, this is simply a deprioritization of these companies, of sort of the market interventions that the right has always supported. Maybe don't bail these companies out. Maybe stop giving them, you know, excessive tax breaks. Maybe stop making actually tax breaks the whole of your agenda and begin focusing on something else. And, and that, I, you know, I think, when you start from, when you embrace that approach, you, you are recognizing where we live. And I think, you know, we talk a lot about woke capital. I think this is especially true with woke capital. You know, you don't have to inform, infuse a regulatory agenda on, you know, whole industries. You just have to make it clear that you aren't going to put up with this, you know, that, that businesses are not allowed to use their corporate power as a, a political weapon without receiving results. And you do that enough times, people start to get the to, to learn the lesson and the market at least starts to revert back to neutrality, which is what we've wanted in the first place. I'll, I'll be brief. I think this goes back to a recurring theme in this show, which is about knowing what time it is and understanding the stakes. So the simple questions that I would pose to 
people who are on the side of uh, purportedly principled loserdom is, you know, is, is losing a conservative principle in your view? I think most of them would say losing is not a conservative principle, particularly given who your opposition is, your political opposition. Is seeing your children subjected to tyranny honorable? Is it a conservative principle? I think not. To not put up a fight with equal gusto to what the other side is putting up, and we haven't even begun to muster it because obviously the, the left and really the ruling class, and I would call it a uniparty uh, cohort, acts with such impunity on a growing basis that the acts are more and more brazen to the point where it suggests that they know that they face no penalty for those acts. So we haven't even begun to get really into it. But doesn't not fighting make one complicit in their agenda at the end of the day? I would argue that it does. And, and the last thing I'll point out is, you know, Barack Obama had that quote about they bring a knife, we bring a gun. And what's funny about that is, in some ways, I think it overestimates who the opposition was that he was referring to there. I would say that for decades, our side has had no knives and the other side has had infinite nuclear weapons. That is how big the chasm is. And so there need to be a thousand Ron DeSantis's blooming around the country. It can't just be a single governor in a single state. It has to be everyone that's engaged. We can do it consistent with our principles. And in fact, it inherently will be consistent with our principle because conservatism is not about losing in the face of tyranny. It's about combating that tyranny with the same kind of intensity, passion and focus as the other side, or you are guaranteed to lose. And we will not lose, to Rachel's point, to a country that ultimately shares the same basic values. It will be a country antithetical to itself. Yeah, I mean, look, just a quickly wrap a bow on this, and then we'll toss it over to Emily for our final segment here. I, I, I think Rachel hit the nail on the head when she said that a lot of this conceit, and it really is conceit. Um, I, I think it's kind of this Whig theory of history conceit that the moral arc of the universe will bend towards conservatism because conservatism is like the transcendental order and natural and ordained by um, our, our creator and so forth. But a lot of this conceit, I think, is predicated on the notion that there is some sort of common consensus that still unites us. I, it's very difficult um, to kind of look at the past five years from you know the the riots the day after Trump was inaugurated with the Women's March in January 2017 to obviously the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation, uh, which is like a red pill of all red pills. I mean, to all the 2020, 16, 19 riots, it's very hard to look at that and say that we really share much in the way, if anything, in common anymore. So, um, any, any, anyway, um, let's go to a slightly uh, well, I guess the in theory it could be a more lighthearted topic, but it's also kind of depressing in and of itself. But uh, Emily, tell us about the doxing with the Washington Post. Yeah, it's always hard for me to determine whether something is hilarious or depressing now. And I think landing on a combination of both usually fits the bill. Um, Taylor Lorenz had a very online capital V, capital O controversy yesterday. But I think, you know, there are real world consequences of it. We don't need to sort of get into the nuanced media debate about whether uh, libs of TikTok is worth you know, coverage from the Washington Post. But what I do think is is worth talking about is how the Washington Post story, which was written by Taylor Lorenz, this, this infamous tech reporter who has had stints at all of the prestigious papers from the Atlantic to the New York Times to the Washington Post, was sort of uh, unhappy with the New York Times being overly restrictive of her um, social media use, which is, let's say, uh, less traditional. Um, she likes to be very personal 
and, uh, you know, intimate uh, on social media and reports on TikTok trends and youth trends on social media. Um, she set out to uh, basically expose who was behind the libs of TikTok Twitter account, which is has a massive following, uh, massive following, and has done better journalism than uh, a whole lot of uh, conservative journalists, um, but especially mainstream journalists, um, by basically just going on TikTok and taking what people are publicly saying um, and putting it onto Twitter where journalists are um, and sort of packaging it in a way that says, here's an extreme thing from a teacher from X school. And it's stunning. I mean, it's teachers saying all kinds of insane things about what they are uh, teaching impressionable children at very young ages about sex and gender and race. They're bragging about it publicly. Um, and here you have an anonymous account um, just taking what's publicly available and posting it. But it, it's, it's just that. It's as simple as that. Um, and so Taylor Lorenz set out to sort of uncover who this person is. And I think what's worth talking about is what Matt Taibbi wrote, um, which is that the story just completely exposes, I think, a huge problem on the left, which is the Washington Post is not the left. Keep that in mind. That's what's even more important about this. This is a purportedly neutral democracy dies in darkness newspaper. Um, and what they did is basically not even quote the videos. They let Lorenz write up this report um, it doesn't even quote the videos of the teachers. It just attacks libs of TikTok with like Media Matters, uh, glad talking points, only quotes people on one side of the story um, and doesn't even deal with the issue that libs of TikTok is dealing with, which is that this is a very legitimate problem of teachers sort of going rogue um, and, you know, teaching very, very biased, very incorrect, very dangerous ideological topics to students at a very young age. The story doesn't deal with that at all. And that's what I want to talk about. Um, you know, I had to sort of lay out the context, but to me, that's the most important part of this is how a, a huge media institution produces such a one-sided story that attacks a person as a transphobe without even getting into the meat of it. And that's, I think, essentially the left's problem. It's not just the Washington Post's problem. It is our political establishment and the, the liberal uh, movement's problem, the broader sort of progressive movement's problem, is that they do not have a plan to deal with any of what's happening in schools, um, even though it's bad for them and immoral. They can't even touch it in a neutral report. Like they didn't even broach what the teachers are actually talking about in this report because they have zero, zero answer to what is happening in schools. And if they touch it, they're afraid they will get destroyed by the left flank, attacked as a transphobe. They empowered those people and now they're so terrified to deal with them, they can't even deal with the immoral ideology that is completely prolific throughout the country. Um, they can't even touch it. They have to be dishonest. Um, even the media has to be dishonest, uh, even though they're like neutral. They, they can't even do what's just a much more interesting story, much more accurate story, um, because they, it's too thorny. Um, and so it's remarkable to me that a story like this gets out the gate, um, gets past the layers of editors that it needs to without you know, telling the truth and, and having any semblance of balance. But it speaks to this problem on the left that they are very ill-equipped to deal with, um, period. Well, it's interesting because I actually, I, I think you're right. They don't have a broad plan, but they they obviously have some sense of a plan here. And that was obvious in the Washington Post article, which is to conflate a very specific 
issue of, you know, transgenderism in the classroom, right? The videos that are being posted are very <laughs> egregious examples of teachers, like telling, you know, kids that they can be, you know, that the, whether they're a boy or girl doesn't matter, et cetera, et cetera, ad nauseum. But their strategy here, which I just think is so unconscionable from a news organization, is to conflate the concern about this very radical trans agenda with how people with homophobia, right? They're trying to say, oh, if you don't like our our really fringe belief about gender ideology, then you don't like gay people. When in fact, the two are very distinct, right? But you can see why they want to go down this road because by and large, the country basically is supportive of gay rights now, right? We, we, I think broadly speaking, that's a majority issue. And so they want to take what's a popular issue and say, oh, this is the same when it's really not. And I think that goes to your point about why they had to eliminate all the context. They didn't quote from any of the videos uh, because if they did, you would see this isn't actually at all about like gay marriage or like gay instructors in the classroom. This is about a much more insidious uh, discussion of whether biology is real. And I think that was my second issue with this whole thing is that I don't even think it's who runs the account is newsworthy. What's newsworthy is the fact that the the account aggregates publicly available content from teachers who are insane. And the fact that we can't talk about that and we have to instead talk about who's running the account, I think should tell you everything you need to know. Yeah, I I mean, I guess my biggest takeaway from this is I, I mean, just to make a very kind of like low hanging fruit level point here, I mean, just the the sheer level of hypocrisy of a publication that adopted as its tagline, you know, democracy dies in darkness. Um, you know, apparently democracy dies in darkness that includes the need to dox people for just taking clips and exposing them. Um, so I, I, I mean, that to me, I just, I just can't wrap my head around that. Look, the doxing thing, I mean, this is so poisonous, this trend. I mean, it really seems, it really feels like it's kind of picked up steam over the past few years here. Anonymous people or pseudonymous, I should say, pseudonymous writers, pseudonymous kind of public facing personalities, speakers, articulators. There's a very long and proud tradition of this and the Anglo-American tradition. I mean, it doesn't take kind of an American history PhD or a constitutional scholar to tell you that. I mean, the writers, the Federalist Papers themselves, obviously, they they, they wrote under Publius. They wrote under kind of a, 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 a very kind of famous kind of pseudonym, you know, we refer to kind of the Mike Anton flood 93 election essay. He originally wrote that under a pseudonym. There was just a very long tradition of, of, of people doing this. And, you know, in, in my position personally as Newsweek opinion editor, we are un- unfortunately unable normally to um, platform suits, but I'm very personally grateful um, for some, I, I guess we'd say um, less mainstream media type outlets like our friends at Claremont's American Minds who routinely do so because some of the best content that you find on Twitter and social media these days are from the suits. I, I mean, there's it's some of the very, very best accounts that I follow, some of the best hot takes that I see, some of the best kind of rapid fire responses to the, you know, our, our roiling and fractious news cycle are from tsunamis accounts whose careers would be endangered if their real identities were exposed. So this is good stuff. I think I think suits are fundamentally, are pseudonyms to kind of not use the shorthand, are fundamentally healthy to a vibrant democracy. And it really, you know, it undermines people to kind of start doing that, obviously, when terrible crap like this happens. Doxing is just, it's evil. It's a really kind of evil, malicious, vindictive act. And, you know, I, I mean, if there was some sort of legislation that could potentially be devised to kind of punish people who dox others, I would be very amenable to that, honestly. Well, like Josh, I too side with the suits over the suits. So I think that we should roll with that going forward. 
Um, you know, my kind of takeaway from this story at a high level is, first of all, you have to understand the context here. And Gwen Greenwald and I think Matt Taibbi and others have exposed this, have been exposing this for months. The Taylor Loren sort of personifies the cry bully media tattletale who pursues hapless people in American society for political ends and then claims that their lives are under threats and that they're literally, I think, in Lorenzo's case, that she faces PTSD for the backlash that she generates by going after these hapless individuals. So the starting point is that this is a bad faith effort coming from a purported journalist who operates in bad faith in a publication that claims democracy dies in darkness, but of course itself operates largely in bad faith, particularly on these kinds of subjects. So that's one point. But but a second point is it is remarkable in some ways, but also not that surprising that this anonymous account, formerly anonymous account, uh, has to be targeted with a Washington Post feature that then explodes on the Internet. But what does it say that the fact that one account on social media that literally just curates the maybe the most insane on the left, but maybe not. Maybe this is actually just a pretty representative cross section of the left that she's capturing here. What does it say that they need to go after the last anonymous account on Twitter that happens to take footage from leftists and circulate it to the world? But does that and I, I go to this question a lot. Does this reflect a regime that is incredibly strong and hegemonic or that is so weak that it literally can't tolerate an account like this? And then not only can't tolerate it, but has to go out and try to destroy this person's life as a threat, as a, to chill anyone else who would dare follow in her footsteps. And the last point I'll make is it's clear, you know, there, there was sort of with critical race theory, this thing of, oh, well, critical race theory isn't really a thing. You know, it's just confined to the law schools. And then it's, oh, well, actually, you know, it's outside of the law schools, but you don't really understand what it is. And then well, it's in schools, but it's actually a good thing. And if you oppose it, then you don't want to teach kids about slavery. And, you know, they continue to shift the goalpost to the end of the universe. And I think here what you see is that on any number of issues, including on the gender slash sex related issues, they know that they are incredibly out of touch with where the American people are, that people see this for the madness that it is, and they cannot defend it. So consequently, all they can do is this sort of one-sided, straw man, bad faith effort to try and attack those who expose it as bigots, because on the merits, they really can't defend the insanity of the positions. And that's why they hate an account like this, which holds up a mirror, a mirror to where their own most animated progressive activists stand. The real problem for the left is that what libs of TikTok exposes is the truth about the left, and they cannot tolerate that because it is poison to their agenda. So very well said, um, but let's use that as a transition to final thoughts. Hard to hard to top that, obviously. But uh, anyone have any final thoughts for today's episode? I can say something optimistic, um, and I'm glad I beat Rachel to the punch so that I'll I'll set the tone, um, and she'll have to follow me, which will be really hard. Um, I I've been thinking over the past week about uh, a the RNC's decision to just not cooperate with the official like presidential debate commission and uh, Elon Musk's sort of flirtation with a hostile takeover of Twitter. And to me, also you can talk about like what Ron DeSantis has been doing that we discussed earlier in the show. Um, to me, this is a, a good sort of feeling about what it looks like 
to to start having these like institutional radical uh, institutional takeovers um, or take backs, not takeovers, taking back institutions. Um, and it's going to be a long, long process. Um, and that there's no question uh, about that. And there's no guarantee that it'll be successful. Um, but we do still live in the greatest you know, country that's ever existed. And we do still have an unprecedented level of sort of freedom within um, a, a republic. And it does seem that as long as there's still the will um, among you know, people and, and people are willing to take bold steps to wield their power, um, you can really see uh, change. And that's not going to happen overnight, but it's possible that rather, uh, the, rather than being sort of at the beginning of the decline, um, we're at the beginning of an adjustment process that uh, you know, actually is, is successful. And that's not to say we'll ever be able to just sort of wipe our hands clean of you know, all of this corruption and the culture war and look back and say, you know, we fixed it. Um, but it is to say that it, we, we may be able to get back to a, a place, a, a country that, you know, you're happy to raise your kids in and you're happy to see your grandkids inherit. Um, and the signs of sort of the, that institutional movement um, are there. If, if you look, they're there. Um, and hopefully, you know, those sort of beget more and more boldness and bravery. And, uh, you know, this is these are the early dominoes. Um, we'll see. But that's one thing to think about. Yeah, I actually have a similar we were having a little bit of a hive mind uh, there. But I think because I think there's two things that are really important about this. One is what Ben brought up at the very end there, which is how fragile the, the left is, how fragile their regime of control is, and sort of tying it into Josh's point about principled loserdom. You know, the right, I think, for a long time has just been taking it, for lack of a better term, right? We just, we just handle it. Like when the left comes after us, we're like, oh, that sucks. And there's been this creeping authoritarianism throughout the country. And I think the right's beginning to push back. But to Ben's point, I don't actually think it's going to take that much to, to, inflict the lesson, right? That you cannot keep punching someone in the face. Eventually they will punch you back. But because the point that Ben made, I think is valid in that they're so fragile, it's only going to take Elon, you know, not that Elon Musk taking over Twitter is a small thing, but it's only going to take like one, you know, pushback there. It's only going to take a governor like Ron DeSantis stripping Disney of its privilege or Texas, you know, punishing an airline for doing the same. It's only going to take a few of these really significant examples for people to be like, oh, this has a cost. There is a cost now for kicking the right in the face where there hasn't been before. And if we can get to that point where we just do this a handful of times, I think that is a deterrent effect enough. And so I just I would ignore these people on the right who, who counsel, oh, well, the founders wanted us to fight with one hand tied behind our back. No, they didn't. Right. George Washington did not cross the Delaware on a random day. He chose Christmas Eve because he was a badass. Right. He didn't he didn't withhold here. And I think it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous notion that we should not fight with everything we have to preserve the way of life uh, that you know, has become consistent with America. And I, I don't think it's going to take very much. It's just going to take waking up in the morning and, and slashing the machete a couple of times, and we will be in a much better position than we are now. You know, and, and let me add to that, that of course, like the people who the left hates the most are the ones who don't submit to their rule. So this is why like a Clarence Thomas, for example, they may try to destroy him to the end of time, 
but he continues to stand up and takes the slings and arrows. And that ought to inspire courage, as I've argued before, in, in everyone. And so I'll kind of end on an optimistic note as well. I was going to say, I was going to talk about the fact that, you know, the hypothetical, like, does the left sit around and have conversations like this about, hmm, well, should we fight with one hand behind our back or just a half a hand behind our back? Like, of course not. It, it, it's, it's self-evidently not a part of their modus operandi because they want to win. They want to dominate. We want to win, but we don't want to dominate other people. We want to live in the country that America ought to be, that it's supposed to be, that was bequeathed bequeath to us. Um, but let me just say, so again, from the optimistic side of things, I think that individuals can really have a tremendous impact, both in terms of fighting back and then also in terms of uh, galvanizing a movement and effectuating massive change, maybe more so than ever, you know, given the way that ideas and information can travel today and be amplified, at least, you know, until we end up on a China in a China style system. But like I, I talked last week about, you know, these kids at the University of Chicago exposing the utter asinine nature of our elites talking about disinformation. You know, Chris Rufo has been a one man wrecking machine that has effectuated movements that have had obviously national implications. Elon Musk, of course, you know, richest man in the world. It's, it's not there aren't exactly many comps for Elon Musk, but another example of one individual who could effectuate potentially a massive earth shattering change when it comes to the communication of ideas, right down to, to people on this podcast as well. Individuals can have a substantial impact if they just have moxie, courage, tenacity, they're fearless in the face of an opposition that is oftentimes tyrannical. Again, it can galvanize and inspire others. And it's a hugely target rich environment. So I think from that perspective, we should all be optimistic because the opportunity set has never been greater and the stakes have never been greater. And that is a time for Americans to step into the breach and defend their country. Yeah, so very difficult to follow these very inspiring kind of uh, st stump speech style final thoughts. I mean, look, I mean, I'll just kind of just echo similar sentiments. And, you know, say, look, I, I mean, I look, I live here in Florida. I mean, it's very hard sometimes in the ecosystem down here not to get kind of like too obsessed with what's happening around you. But I do think the DeSantis versus Disney, I, I, I should say Florida, it's not just DeSantis, it is, the, it is the Florida Republican in particular, Florida GOP's fight versus the Walt Disney Company. I think that it really is a potential, a potentially important inflection point here. Because the thing about Florida that, you, you know, anyone who's paid even like a modicum of attention to American politics over the past 20, 30 years knows you know, Florida is not Oklahoma. It's not Wyoming. OK, this is not like a, a a deep, deep red state where Republicans are winning 30, 40 point you know, landslides every four years. Obviously, DeSantis beat Andrew Gillum, who, to put it mildly, was an exceedingly highly flawed candidate. Um, you know, he won by like 40 to 50,000 votes in 2018. I mean, he'll, he'll, he'll win by a very wide margin this fall. But the point that the governor here and what he's doing in this special, um, you know, in this special session, he's going to he's going to kind of get past his um, all, all signs look like he's going to be able to get past um, a, a, a new congressional maps for Florida that is exceedingly good for Republicans. It looks like we're going to get constitutional carry, obviously, this fight with Disney to kind of take away their special privileges for their zoning uh, in Orlando in the, in the Kissimmee area. So this really should be an inspiring example. And I think Rachel's right that the fragility of the left's system, their very tenuous hold, their very tenuous grasp on power, the fact that they feel such a compelling you know, a, a imperious need to lash out and censor and dox anonymous accounts like libs of TikTok. If we just have a couple of big examples 
to really just stand up there and punish our enemies. Yes, punish our enemies within the confines of the rule of law. That is exactly what this is in Florida, literally punishing them within the confines of the rule of law by taking away a special extra legal privilege. Really not a particularly radical measure, by the way. Um, if anything, it potentially could, it probably could be even worse than that. It could be even more than that. But the fact that the left is reacting as they are, obviously tells all you, all you need to know. But I think it's a, it's a potentially important inflection point. If Florida can do it, there is no excuse whatsoever why all these other red states can do it. South Dakota, Wyoming, you know, all like the deep red states. So I, I really do hope that a lot of these other red states are looking here to this special legislative session as a potentially important example moving forward. But um, for this week, we are out of time. So on behalf of Rachel, Ben and Emily, I'm Josh Hammer. Thanks so much for tuning in and we'll see you at the next NatCon Squad.